the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Well, let's let's get right to my number one burning question. What happened to Justice Scalia's father's library? The volumes in the basement of the building that had like five different languages and I think it was uh, Eugene Scalia, maybe it was Father Paul went in with him when his father died. What did they do with all those books? That's a great question. I don't know the ultimate disposition of Salvador Eugene, Salvatore, uh, Eugene Scalia's library. Uh, there is the scene in the book uh, where Father Paul uh, accompanies his father, Antonin Scalia, to uh, the home of uh, Antonin Scalia's father after his death to dispose of this extraordinary library that the old man had. And Father Paul Scalia, who was interviewed for this book, told me uh, that what was most remarkable about all of those books arrayed before them uh, was that they were divided not by subject matter or by author, but by language. That's how many languages Salvatore Eugene Scalia spoke. And and it it impressed upon the young Paul Scalia, later to become Father Paul Scalia, uh, the importance of scholarship and work to this family. You know, I've had three of the Scalias on the show, Father Paul, Chris, Mm -hmm. and Eugene. And so I, I don't know, Mrs. Scalia, I did do some work for Judge Scalia on the D.C. Circuit for about a month when my judge was sick. So I knew him a little bit, but not very well. I just got to tell you, what I learned term was so, that? What's that? What term? Yeah. What term was that? Do you 83 recall? to 84. And uh, my judge, Roger Robb, who took senior status, had a stroke. And so Terry Ross and I were the co-clerks and we got passed around from Scalia to Bork to Ginsburg to Skelly Wright to Spots Robinson. We all did like a week and a half or two weeks, and we got one case each from each of them. I loved them all. Scalia scared the hell out of me, though, because he was he's a big personality, as you know, better than most. I, we're, we're not going to talk about your personal relationship with the justice, but you know he's a big personality. He scared the hell out of this 24-year-old guy who'd been working for Nixon. I got to tell you one thing in that now, I regard. I believe that it was... Uh... It was Judge Robb's vacancy that Judge Scalia took when he was seated. Yeah, that's why I mentioned earlier on the show, I might like Scalia uh, a lot because it's the only book I've ever encountered where three of my first five bosses are mentioned within two pages, Roger Robb, Fred Fielding, and William French Smith. I work for him in order of Robb, Smith, uh, Fielding. But I had dinner with Fred on Friday night, and I read your book on Sunday coming back from D.C., or I would have told Freddie he had to go out and get this because it's really you got the details on DOJ during the Smith uh, and Meese years. You got the whole scoop. Well, thank you, Hugh. First of all, I would suggest to you that uh, given all the individuals you worked for and around at that time, that there is room in this in this world for a short memoir by you about your Justice Department experiences, I should think, and, and what relevance they may hold for today. That's just friend to friend and book lover to book lover. Uh, but uh, yes, this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, contains a vast wealth of new documents that have never appeared before. Uh, and I call it the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it's the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia. The two previous biographies turned out 
fairly hostile uh, to Justice Scalia, to his legacy and his jurisprudence, his conduct, despite the fact that he cooperated extensively with one of those biographers. Uh, and so this is really the book that Scalia fans and all students of an accurate history of American law and society uh, in the past 50 years have been waiting for. It ends with uh, Antonin Scalia taking his seat on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I think writing biographies of judges and justices is a very difficult business because they have very public lives, but very private dispositions. They cannot be out in public except in very extraordinary circumstances. You captured that, that visit to the Department of Justice before he was nominated and the speech that he gave. I didn't know any of that stuff. I mean, there's stuff in here that, that I should know that I do not know. Number one, I had no idea he was a Jones Day associate for six years. I went to Michigan Law School, which vetted all, as you point out, they vetted all the stuff that Scalia had done before he was nominated to the court. And it wasn't fair that Lee Lieberman wrote the OLC memo on him, but it was nevertheless fun to learn that from you. But I did not have a clue that he was a Jones Day lawyer. And the one thing that's not here, James, maybe it's not important to you, but I'm a law professor, so I want to know, how did he get from Jones Day to UVA? I mean, who, who opened that door for him? That's interesting. You're the second person who's read the book to ask me that question recently. Uh, the question of how uh, Antonin Scalia, having practiced law, uh, private practice uh, for Jones Day in Cleveland from 1962 to or 1962 to 66, 67, uh, then transitions that year uh, to go be a professor at the University of Virginia Law School. Uh, young Antonin Scalia, when he was first hired out of Harvard Law School for Jones Day, told the folks there that he intended at some point to teach. But one of the, I would say, most striking revelations of this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, is that we answer in it uh, what had been one of the very few mysteries still enduring about Antonin Scalia's life, and that is when he first began to harbor within him the ambition to become a Supreme Court justice. The justice's uh, most ardent defenders, his family, his clerks, others in academia, uh, have always been leery of allowing this ambition to become a Supreme Court justice to be ascribed to Justice Scalia uh, too early, lest it contribute to what they consider and what I consider the false narrative that was promulgated in the first two biographies, uh, the, this sort of careerist narrative. Uh, which held that everything Scalia did, every opinion he wrote, was tailored to curry power and favor with uh, more powerful people who could advance him to the Supreme Court. And of course, that's not true. I interviewed many people who worked with Scalia at all points in his career, and they all said that that's not true, that in fact, he was quite willing to issue controversial opinions, ones he knew would be find disfavor even amongst his own colleagues uh, and, and what have you. Uh, but in any case, uh, this book makes use of so much wealth of new documents Hugh, that I, I hope our readers will take, our listeners and our viewers will take the time to read it because you have uh, an oral history that Justice Scalia uh, conducted in his own chambers in 1992 that had never been used by any biographer before. You have his FBI files uh, and you have his correspondence with Ruth Bader Ginsburg from the earliest days of their friendship. So there's really a lot here. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to Ferky. By the way, on behalf of everyone who's ever worked on a FERC case, which includes me, it's very, very bad to say that FERC are the worst cases, even though they are the worst cases, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission cases. He left Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a FERC opinion to finish when he got elevated to the Supreme Court. I love that exchange. But mostly I love you Thank tracking you. down Opus Dei priest Father O'Connor in Rome at Father the age Connor. of 80 father. So, yeah. uh, is it O'Connor or Connor? It's Connor. Okay, Father Connor vanishes from medical school 
Antonin Scalia goes to try and talk him out of dropping out, and you recount what Connor told you two years ago or three years ago. Tell the story, James, because that's a this is an Opus Dei priest in Rome. He's not making stuff up. He's now in New Jersey, but he studied Opus Dei in Rome. Yes, we're talking about, and this really gets to what we were just discussing about one of the enduring mysteries of Antonin Scalia's life. If there are any, this was one of them. Uh, that we resolve in the pages of Scalia Rise to Greatness, I think decisively. Uh, this is based on my interview, as you say, with Father Robert Connor, still with us today uh, in his mid-80s, perhaps his late 80s at this point. He was one of only three people I could find who had been a surviving classmate of Antonin Scalia's from when he graduated from Xavier High School in 1953. Interestingly, Hugh, one of the other uh, two besides Father Connor that I found was uh, former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, uh, but who told me that he did not know Antonin Scalia at Xavier when they both graduated the same year. In any case, um, I asked Father Connor if he had ever been interviewed about his lengthy relationship with Antonin Scalia by anybody else, including the FBI. Because as I mentioned, we uh, obtained the FBI files for Antonin Scalia. They were declassified after his death. Uh, he was vetted by the FBI four times within 14 years because of how quickly Scalia rose through the executive and judicial branches. Uh, Father Connor told me, no, he's never been interviewed by anyone about his relationship with Scalia, and, he, and certainly not the FBI, that he thought he would remember that. Uh, and so, in essence, what Father Connor told me has never been disclosed before. Uh, and what happened was that uh, they were great friends at Xavier. Uh, they were on the marching band together. They played hoops together. Scalia set Bob Connor up with a date at one point. Uh, they were close, and they're pictured together in the photograph section of this book. Um, and uh, by the time they got through college, they were still friends, but not seeing each other as often, but still had their folks living in Queens, you know. Uh, and at one point, uh, Father, well, Bob Connor decides he's going to drop out of med school and go study Opus Dei uh, in Rome. And Mrs. Connor is distraught because she thinks she, her son is throwing his future away. So she summons to the house the two men that she thought might be able to talk sense into her son. One was a Jesuit priest, excuse me, <clears throat> named Father Morrison, who did come to the Connor home on Downey Road in Queens, south side of the street. And there on that day, when Father Morrison came to visit him, Connor was sitting in his brother Jim's bedroom on the second story of that home. This is June or early July of 1959. Scalia was 22 at the time. And he was the second person that Mrs. Connor summoned to the family home on Downley Road in Queens that day to try and talk sense into her son. And uh, Scalia was no stranger to this family. Uh, Bob Connor, Father Connor, told me that his own father used to see Scalia perform, which he did frequently, on television or on the radio, uh, listen on the radio, when Scalia as a student appeared on like student quiz show programs of the 1950s, and his father would actually say to Bob Connor, oh, you should have heard it. Scalia really gave it to him this week. So Scalia had fans uh, as a teenager. Uh, but in any case, he shows up at Bob Connor's house. It's the brother's room on the second story. They haven't seen each other in a while. And, and Connor is stunned to see Nino Scalia, his friend. And Scalia says to him, this is all according to the interview I did with Father Connor in 2020 as a uh, as you mentioned, uh, he said, Scalia walks in and says, what are you doing? And Connor says, I'm going to go study Opus Dei in Rome. I asked if Scalia, devout Catholic that he was, 
seemed to evince any particular understanding of what Opus Dei was. Connor told me, Father Connor told me, that he had to explain it to Scalia, and he explained it that Opus Dei, they find the, uh, the sanctity in everyday things, in everyday life. And Scalia nodded and said, sounds good to me. And then, according to Father Connor, he asked Scalia, what are you doing? And Scalia replied back to him, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And I asked Father Connor, was that fanciful? And, and oh, we just lost you. We just lost James Rosen, so we've got to pick that up and edit it that. Was that fanciful? Uh, it's an amazing story, um, and it, it, we'll get him back in just a second. It's an amazing story. Uh, and Oh, you're back. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. I, I guess we lost me there. Yeah. Uh, and in essence, Father Connor says to Scalia, Where are you, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Father Connor said he had a job lined up in Ohio at a law firm. I said, yes, that was Jones Day in Cleveland. Uh, and he said, well, Scalia told me they have a Washington office, which then is now, Jones Day does. Uh, and he said, I will be sent to Washington and I will rise. And, and the know, way there's Father nothing Connor wrong with ambition. Me, what I love about this, James Rosen, is that Scalia's path was not uninterrupted by disappointment. In fact, it is marked by disappointment. He does not get into his first choice high school in New York, which I did not know. He does not get into Princeton. He does not get the Solicitor Generalship when he wants to be the Solicitor General of the United States. And what he does is work harder and work happier. There, there are two themes in this book, affability and hard work. Now, these happen to be James Rosen characteristics, and I would like to think I've got the same, too. But they are, they're kind of central to succeeding in Washington. You must be affable, and you must work endlessly if you want to rise. And when he turns down the Seventh Circuit, to me, that is the greatest marker of the ambition of Justice Scalia, which, by the way, is a fine ambition. You can want to be at the top of your profession. That's a great thing to aspire to be. But when he turns down the Seventh Circuit, isn't that an underscore for you that he had his eye on the marble temple, as you call it? Well, again, he announced to Bob Connor, later an Opus Dei priest, uh, that he was going to rise to the Supreme Court. That was his ambition at 22. And as you say, there's nothing wrong with it. And those who are the most ardent defenders of Justice Scalia are all, like the rest of us, better off uh, that he had that ambition so early and pursued it, obviously, within the bounds of propriety. Charles Schulz always said that he knew he wanted to be a cartoonist at the age of five. Uh, and we're all better off that some people are blessed with that knowledge early on of where they belong and what they want to do. Uh, but in any case, um, I think that um, I'll let you take it from there, Hugh. I don't, I'm not going to. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the extraordinary normalcy of Antonin Scalia. Uh, by that, I mean, I love the, the, the picture of him standing at the counter in the kitchen every night, having his whiskey sour, cheese and cracker, and reading the comics. And I guess Meg told you that. I don't know, Meg. That's a great picture of Justice Scalia, standing at the kitchen counter, having a whiskey sour, cheese and crackers, and reading the comic. Who reads the comics who's on the Supreme Court? Well, I think that actual portrait is painted from his days on the uh, on the, the uh, circuit. Uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. But it's also important to note that his father who was a stern guy, a brilliant man and a, and a professor of romance languages, but a stern guy uh, for whom an A- minus was never good enough, uh, used to give Judge Scalia a hard time for reading the comics. The one point I wanted to add to earlier 
which I'm grateful to have recalled, Hugh, is that you said, look, you got to be affable and you got to work really hard to rise in Washington. And those are two, as you see, the two essential elements in Scalia's particular alchemy, let's say. But uh, really, the, the, the essential element is Catholic faith, too. And this book yes. is the first, I think, biography of Antonin Scalia to really treat his Catholicism with the proper uh, according of respect and place in his life. You know, James, that was very surprising. I am uh, I'm a good Catholic, meaning I go to Mass every uh, week and I go to confession and I am in uh, communion with the with the church. And I take seriously the work of Vatican II. And I have never read anyone. You're not Catholic. And you understood that Vatican II's emphasis on documents and the emphasis on tradition and the emphasis on Latin and the emphasis on learning and on uh, original meaning, right? That is Catholic doctrine that comes out. And you also explain, by the way, you're not a lawyer, but you explain the difference between original intent and original meaning better than most lawyers I know can do it. But you also fuse the Catholicism that Scalia lived with his ju- approach to judicial matters, I think, very well. You want to explain it? Thank you. Well, yes. And uh, just to complete the trifecta, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a Catholic. I'm also not Italian. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, we got to we got to walk the mile in order to get to our biographical subjects. But um, uh, when you talk about how uh, Scalia's Catholicism um, informed his later work as a jurist, as a judge and a justice on the Supreme Court. Um, he himself was very careful in how he described this. Uh, for one thing, in the oral history that he conducted in 1992 that had never been released until now, um, he, was, he, dis- he d- discounted the idea that his uh, Jesuitical training at Xavier and Georgetown uh, uh, directly informed his his option for originalism and textualism. Um, However, he also bristled when, uh, in one case, a very good friend of his, this will be covered in volume two, uh, dared to suggest publicly that Scalia's Catholicism was directly uh, manifesting itself in his Supreme Court opinions. It caused a rift between Justice Scalia and this individual that went on for about five years before they reconciled. Uh, But uh, Justice Scalia never wanted anyone to imagine that he would allow his Catholicism to put its thumb on the scale, so to speak, of how he would interpret the Constitution or, or, or a lawfully enacted statute or agency rule. What he would say is there's no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. But, he said, the closest we could come to a Catholic hamburger would be a hamburger that was made perfectly. <laughs> you know, when, when we come back for Volume 2, we're going to talk about Employment Division v. Smith. The only Scalia opinion I do not care for, and I believe it may have been influenced subconsciously by his faith that the Roman Catholic Church could endure anything. Other churches can't, but he wasn't. We'll talk about that down the road. I want to talk about rigorous Catholicism. I was reminded of a Bronx tale as I read about his upbringing. Did you see that movie? Robert De Niro plays the bus driver with the son who's walking a path between bad guys and good guys. You remember that movie? I, I, I saw the movie when it came out, Chaz Palminteri, I remember it. Yeah, so it came to mind when you talked about his mother being deeply involved in Justice Scalia's life, making sure he hung out with the right people, which he did not realize until later. This is, by the way, the art of the biographer. Leon Edel called it the figure beneath the carpet. How do you find the figure beneath the carpet? And that always means the parents and the grandparents. And I I so am impressed with your work into Sam and his mother. But explain how his mother 
was doing what Robert De Niro did in a Bronx now, trying to keep him away from the wrong people and in with the right people. Justice Scalia discussed this in uh, some of the interviews that he gave, uh, one of them to his former colleague from their White House days, uh, Brian Lamb, uh, on C-SPAN. Uh, and and when uh, Brian Lamb just once asked uh, Scalia, who was Catherine Pinero uh, Scalia? And he said, that was my mother. And he's and um, he said that she made sure that I that I had the right associations. Uh, and when Brian Lamb pressed further as to what that meant, Justice Scalia said his mother made sure that he hung out with the right kids, um, had made sure that he joined uh, the Cub Scouts, made sure that the meetings were held at her house uh, and in a, made sure she knew which subjects he was studying. Of course, uh, Scalia's mother was an elementary school teacher herself, the daughter of Italian immigrants. You know, um, we're talking about family and its impact on Justice Scalia. But I have to say that I'm very pleased that in one of the reviews for Scalia Rise to Greatness that's been published so far, uh, someone said that, uh, in essence, that Justice Scalia is the, the protagonist of the book, but the hero is Maureen Scalia. And when we talk about the elements that fueled Scalia's rise, whether it was his Catholicism, uh, his family influence, his affability, his capacity for hard work, let's just wrap that all under the word genius. There is also the hero, the dark side of the moon of the Antonin Scalia success story, and that is Maureen Scalia. Jean Scalia, the, the justice's oldest son, prominent attorney in his own right, Secretary former of Labor. cabinet official, yeah. um, told me that, you know, you're writing a book about my dad. I can name several very influential Supreme Court justices. I'm paraphrasing what Gene told me. But he said, I don't think I could name another person who pulled off what my mom managed. You know, and as the justice always said, uh, he took care of the Constitution and Maureen took care of everything else. He said that she raised their nine children with very little assistance from him. Now, I interviewed four of the nine Scalia children, and they made clear their, their dad was by no means an absentee father. But when it came to uh, their math homework, uh, making sure they hung out with the right friends, had the right associations, getting them to their soccer games. This was all Maureen Scalia. And as he rose through the, the executive branch in the Ford era, in the mid-1970s, uh, as now an assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice, uh, Scalia traveled more and more. And I'm the first to really look at the calendar and also look at the sort of, if you will, the schedule of the nine births. Um, and there was a point where the Scalia's had eight children ranging in age from about a year old to uh, 1960 or 15 years old. And, and Antonin Scalia would be uh, away at a conference in Germany for six days or in Italy for two days doing uh, ABA work. Um, and it's really extraordinary. Um, all that yeah, yeah, let's pause on that, uh, James. My, my daughter's a mill spouse with four kids under the age of 11, and her husband is deployed a lot, a lot, Navy, Navy guy. And I'm amazed that she can handle four on her own. I do not know how Maureen Scalia does nine uh, halftime. So you're right. The, uh, you, you give her her due. I do want to tell you my favorite Scalia's dad story, though. I can't remember which boy gets in trouble for bottle rockets in Chicago and picked up by the <laughs> University of Chicago police. But tell that story because it's a very unexpected result. So this was told to me again by Eugene Scalia, the former cabinet secretary, uh, who attended University of Chicago in the late 70s when his father was a professor of law there. And uh, Secretary Scalia related to me that on one occasion, he joined up with his friends, uh, some of whom uh, in the vanguard of this movement, 
uh, decided to start throwing rocks at windows at a nearby apartment building from a park. Uh, and as Secretary Scalia described it to me, he was not one of the rock throwers, but he was among them. And, of course, he was the one who was picked up by the University of Chicago uh, cops. And, uh, and, you know, they said, we're going to have to tell your father. And they dragged him down to wherever they dragged him down to. And, uh, you know, they ratted him. And he went home and confronted, was confronted by his father, Professor Scalia. And the first thing Professor Scalia said was, you know how bad this is? And Gene, young Gene Scalia said, yes, I do. And there was a, th a pause and maybe some preliminary discussion of the potential consequences. But finally then, Professor Scalia says, well, in my day in Queens, you should have seen the M-80s we used to like. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so stepping that, out of character. That is a legendary uh, explosive beloved by adolescent boys, uh, the M-80. Uh, and, and it shows up in Justice Scalia. Let's get, we can't give everything away. People have to read it to enjoy it. I am reminded of Ulysses Grant being said, Tell me about the boy, and I'll know the man. And I think your retelling of Justice Scalia's years in Queens, his riding on the subway with a rifle back and forth to Manhattan every day, that's going to shock a few people, right? If you see anyone with a rifle on the Manhattan to Queens subway, you're going to run today. But evidently, it was a daily occurrence for Xavier High School students, right? Yeah, and, and as a justice on the Supreme Court, Scalia loved to tell that story. I just I just think that I didn't know that. Let me go to the end of this first volume to, by the way, the White House Office of Technology Communications Policy, OTP. I did not know that Scalia was a Nixon appointee. I did not know that Brian Lamb was a Nixon appointee. And I did not know that they worked together. Now, Brian does me the great honor of listening to this show most days. Best interviewer in America, I think. And uh, he should come out of retirement and go back to doing what he's doing. But he tells the justice, I'll do the PR, you do the law. I love that exchange. Did they stay friends throughout their entire D.C. careers? Yes, I would call Brian Lamb one of uh, Justice Scalia's closest friends for something like 45 years. And, and Brian Lamb's all over this book for you C-SPAN lovers out there. Uh, he, I did an interview with Brian at C-SPAN in 2017 for this book, and his insights are unlike anybody else's. Um, except when they're corroborated by others. And uh, he will feature prominently in volume two as well. You know, it's just amazing to me that I did not know that until I read this book. Because Brian Lamb may is I the last guy to drop word, a name. Uh, Hugh, may, may I offer one additional word about the OTP? So this was the, called, it was a new agency created by the Nixon administration called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. There was a recognition on the part of a particular young aide to Nixon named Clay Tom Whitehead. Tom Whitehead was an absolute genius with multiple degrees from places like MIT. He worked for RAND. And he saw that telecom was the future. And he saw that the federal government's approach to it was a mess of policies across many different agencies and should be consolidated under the administrative control of the White House. And when they set up the new agency and said, go do it, Tom Whitehead's first cho choice was to for, hire as his general counsel, Antonin Scalia, who was about 35, a little older than Tom Whitehead. The two of them revolutionized the world together. And I'm the first researcher. This book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is the first book to publish Antonin Scalia's correspondence and handwritten notes and letters and draft opinions when he was the general counsel to this new telecom agency. And they crackle with the usual Scalia wit. 
Uh, and but what the chief thing that that Whitehead and Scalia, they were sort of like a Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid for the telecom revolution in the early 70s. What they managed to accomplish was what they called the open skies policy. Yes. Which was that not just one place, ComSat, could launch domestic space satellites, any qualified corporation with the requisite technical prowess and capital reserves could launch domestic space satellites. This is what turbocharged the telecom revolution. And in those papers of his, Scalia actually predicted the Internet. In 1971, he wrote a paper called The Computer Society, in which he predicted that remote users at different terminals would not only have access to hundreds of channels of TV, but would do their banking from there and could retrieve information from any library in the world. And he also predicted the attendant privacy concerns. So, again, to, to, to learn, as I did in researching this book, that Antonin Scalia and his legal genius were present at the, at the creation of the telecom revolution in this country. Uh, again, it's one more way in which he touched just about James, every American I'm, I'm curious. Were you not intimidated? Look, Lee Lieberman Otis is one of the smartest people I've ever met. She was a clerk for Scalia when I was a clerk for Rob. And she is one of your sources, and she talked to you, and she wrote the, when you talk to Lee Lieberman Otis or when you're reviewing OTC general counsel opinions, you're deep into the weeds of legal arcana. Were you at all put off by that challenge? I know you did the John Mitchell book, but that was more politics than law because he's the AG and he's making decisions. This is pure law, but yet you just dove in. So I am the son of an attorney. My dad now only retired for about three years, is 88. Uh, so I came to, uh, you know, my professional life, I suppose, with a certain lawyerly cast of mind. At least I'm willing to play one on TV. But, um, uh, yes, you're quite right that uh, it is daunting for a non-lawyer to wade into opinions and draft opinions and, and to have to learn some of the terminology like per curiam and what have you. Um, uh, at the outset of the project, two individuals who were interviewed for it, uh, Ed Whalen and uh, Leonard Leo, were talking about it. And Ed, I guess, said to, to Leonard, uh, or expressed to Leonard some concern that James is not a lawyer uh, for this project. And, that, and Leonard Leo replied to Ed Whalen, yes, that's why James is perfect for it. That may, uh, by the way, so, I agree. That may be why it's the only readable biography. Now, I love Clarence Thomas's book, uh, his memoir, My Grandfather's Son. And I loved uh, Evan Thomas's first about Sandra Day O'Connor. But they were both, one is personal and the other is post-mortem. This one comes out afterwards, but it it's two volumes. It's riveting. I mean, people, every page, people learn something. I want to go to the end, though. Before we run out of time, I want to put the cherry on top. Scalia gets confirmed 98 to 0. I love the conversation with a fellow by the name of John Bolton, who calls him at the Willard Hotel to tell him he's been confirmed 98 to 0. And Scalia wants to know who didn't vote for me. And it's Goldwater and it's Garn. Am I right about that? Goldwater and Garn? You're and, correct. And, and yeah. he will not let it go. And it's sort of a it's a, a little perfect piece of, of cherry on the top. He just wants to know who the two people are because he had... You recount in great detail the Renquisition, which I lived through. I was over at OPM. I had nothing to do with it, but I watched it as a member of the administration. The Renquisition was hard. And then Scalia skates through with everyone trying to kill him, but no one can touch him. You devote a lot of time to, and to President Biden's participation in it. Was that strategic on your on your part to, to sort of draw attention to the confirmation process then and what it is metamorphized into now, which is a horrible, terrible meltdown. 
I don't know, as I describe it as strategic on my part, but it was uh, certainly deliberate on my part that I wanted to place the Scalia nomination in the context, the proper context, which is not just that he won 98 to nothing confirmation, but but also uh, that uh, his confirmation took place at uh, close to the dawn of what was becoming an uglier era. The original Rehnquist um, Supreme Court hearings in 1971 were pretty ugly. Um, and uh, when he was elevated to chief justice in 1986, it guaranteed it was going to be uglier still with the media landscape so changed. Um, and um, uh, honestly, if you, you and I have talked about this previously, I think, Hugh, that uh, this really dates back to the Fortis episode. Uh, and the knocking of Fortas off the Supreme Court by Nixon and Mitchell, and the payback that was then executed against a perfectly qualified nominee in Clement Hainsworth. Uh, and then you get Carswell and off to the Not qualified. But this, <laughs> Carswell you know, this is not, not qualified. Uh, this, did not originate, this did not originate with, uh, with Judge Bork in 1987, is what I, I was trying to show. Uh, but yes, and, and to the question of whether I was being strategic, again, I, I don't know that I'd use that word, but I, it was deliberate on my part to draw attention to the role of then-Senator Joe Biden, in the Scalia process, because it's never been examined uh, at length or critically previously. And so this is the first critical examination of Mr. Biden's participation in the Scalia process. And honestly, it, it, he didn't distinguish himself. No, he time. did not. And Despite certain, his, you gave him a bit, a bit of a compliment. I can't put my finger on it. His discursive approach somehow opened up some opportunities for Scalia to talk. And so you pay the president a backhanded compliment, but mostly he's dense. He's mostly missing the whole deal and trying repeatedly to get him to say things he doesn't want to. Let me close well, by talking. At one talk point, uh, Senator Biden says to the nominee, Antonin Scal or Judge Scalia, forget the Constitution, let's talk politics. Yeah. Any Supreme Court That's nominee it. would be well advised to follow that counsel. I, I want. I always thought that Ruth Bader Ginsburg invented the Ginsburg rule. Scalia actually invented the Ginsburg rule, as you recount on Marbury v. Madison. What an elegant answer. People have to read it to get the elegant answer, because he was going to be asked, they were going to pin him down, isn't Marbury v. Madison as good? And the rule was, if you talk about one case, you got to talk about every case. So how do you answer the Marbury question? James Rosen tells you. Democrats on the D.C. Circuit including Harry Edwards, great liberal lion of the court, Abner Mikva, great liberal lion out of Chicago and Nepal, Pat Ward, a superb judge. David Bazelon may have been in his early stages of dementia when the endorsement came down, but Skelly Wright, Spots Robinson, they all endorsed Scalia. I mean, that's unheard of now, isn't it? Uh, very much so. Uh, that was a different day and age, but it was a different kind of court. One of the themes we'll be exploring uh, in the uh, early chapters of the second volume, uh, which I haven't discussed anywhere else um, because I haven't written it, but um, it will be uh, the sort of sense of disappointment that Scalia found once he finally started serving on the Supreme Court, that it wasn't the same kind of court he had really enjoyed uh, from 82 to 86 when he was on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, a, a real murderer's row of judicial talent at that time that included Bob Bork. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, and Ken they Starr. are then joined by Ken Starr and George Lawrence McKinnon. Silberman. Oh, Lawrence Silberman. So, uh, but the two courts functioned very differently. And one was more collegial and given to debate, uh, which Scalia loved. And the other, uh, he found a very different experience. And I'll be exploring those themes in the second book. You know, I did not know that the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Scalia correspondence had been open because I read Nina Totenberg's book this summer, Dinners with Ruth. 
and she discusses the great relationship between them. But the esteem that they held for each other at the circuit was widely known by the clerks on the court. I didn't um, see it firsthand, but I knew about it. And you got the correspondence. How did you even find out that it was there? Uh, so uh, there's about 220 boxes of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers stored at the Library of Congress. Her papers from her Supreme Court tenure are, remain closed. Just about all of Justice Scalia's papers at the Harvard Law School Library remain closed. In fact, when I uh, asked my, my colleagues and friends uh, who are the custodians of the Scalia collection at Harvard Law School Library, if they could help me nail down the date of my second lunch with Justice Scalia, that, I, that it, I knew it took place in the fall term of 2001, uh, they replied politely that uh, they wouldn't be able to help me because that segment of Justice Scalia's papers will remain closed until 2032. Uh, but Judge uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers from her tenure on the D.C. Circuit are open, as are Robert Bork's, as are Skelly Wright's, uh, and others. And uh, the way these courts function, all of these judges and then later justices they, they circulate memoranda back and forth and draft opinions back and forth, and they comment and they scribble on these things and they make jokes. And, it's, um, and so it's almost as if every judge has the other judge's files. Um, and so a lot of, even though Scalia's papers remain closed, for the D.C. Circuit period, I now have access to a lot of his papers because they show up in the folders and the files of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I Bob am Bork astonished so by that. I, I really, I, I, I'm thinking back to... One case in particular where Judge Bork was very unhappy with Judge Robb and let him know it. And I didn't know that those papers even existed. And I, you know, I just I didn't know. You've done an amazing bit of research here. Let me conclude by talking about your book tour. Every Legatus uh, chapter in the country is going to want you to come and talk about Justice Scalia, the Catholic. Legatus being the organization of Catholic businessmen and women who are CEOs, CFOs, etc. And every Federalist Society is going to want you to come and talk, James Rosen. You've written the book for both of those audiences. How is demand? I see it selling very well at Amazon, but sometimes, you know, you, you do a two-volume work, you always have to worry about whether the first volume will take off, but this is about a kid from Queens, so I think it will. Uh, how's it doing? Seems to be doing great, thanks to a lot of friends like yourself who have uh, given us the space and the time to promote it. Uh, again, this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, this is the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, so it's the first accurate one. It makes use of so many different files and personal interviews and sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to his previous biographers, who were in any case hostile to him and to what he stood for. And it's the first book to really explore the dimensions of his Catholic faith uh, in a proper way, I think. So it's the book Scalia fans have been waiting for, and it's the book that you, you want to read and perhaps give as a gift if you want to know an accurate history of the last 50 years of American law and society. I wholly second that. I wholly second that. James Rosen, thanks for so much time this morning. Congratulations on Rise to Greatness. Scalia, Rise to Greatness. I look forward already to Volume 2. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.